it's relationships. And the coaches that are successful and experience success have had the ability to develop those relationships, get kids to play hard for them, to play for something bigger than themselves. If you don't have those, you're not going to be successful. The Holding Court Podcast is powered by Fundraising University Ohio. Fundraising University Ohio offers a variety of fundraising efforts that help basketball teams run profitable, effective, and fast-paced fundraisers designed to raise the most money in the shortest amount of time to reach their fundraising goals. Fundraising University Ohio is locally owned and operated, and with their six-step blitz system, will help your team maximize profits. As a former basketball coach himself, Brent Maxwell will sit down and help you pick, plan, strategize, and execute your fundraiser, which will allow you as a coach to devote more time to the other aspects of your program. If you're looking to take your fundraising efforts to the next level, contact Brent Maxwell at bmaxwell at fundraisingu.net or 740-501-8946 to learn more. Welcome to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Join hosts Adam Hall and Walt Serrato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in Ohio high school basketball and beyond. This show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get to it. Hello, this is Walt Serrato. We have a special edition of the Holding Court podcast tonight. We're going to switch it up a little bit. Uh, our guest is someone that all of our listeners should be very familiar with. It's actually uh, my colleague and co-host, Adam Hall, uh, the current varsity girls head coach at Canton South High School. Um, also holds many titles within the OHSBCA. Coach Hall, thank you very much for doing this and welcome to the Holding Court podcast. Thanks, Walt. Excited. All right, so let's jump right in here. Um, we're coming on the heels of, of our annual OHSBCA clinic. Um, maybe catch us up to speed. You know, our listeners, maybe some coaches that weren't able to make it down, um, how things went. I know we also had our first annual golf outing a couple weeks ago. Catch us up to speed on how that went. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, let's start off on Saturday. So we held our inaugural OHSBCA golf outing at Glen Ross Golf Club in Delaware, Ohio. We had 17 teams participate in year one, which we were very excited about. It was a great day, a great time of fellowship to, to get together with your staff and just have some fun, play around to golf. Uh, we were blessed to be joined by Austin Carr and Campy Russell from the Cleveland Cavaliers. They played around to golf and then spoke to everyone in attendance afterwards. We're hoping that this can be something that becomes an annual thing. And some of our thought processes behind putting the golf outing together was we understand that for a lot of coaches, being able to stay that extra day at the clinic on Monday just isn't possible anymore, whether they work or they're unable to get that professional day. And sometimes just coming down on a Sunday, staying a couple hours and then leaving doesn't entice coaches uh, anymore. We understand that. So the hope is by doing this golf outing, maybe we can get coaches to come down on Saturday with their staff now play a round of golf, and then come to the clinic on Sunday and pick up some things that they can take back uh, to their program. So that was a really, really great thing we did, and we plan on doing it again next year. And then as far as the clinic goes, uh, once again, and, and Walt, you were there, uh, just a phenomenal clinic. We had a great lineup of speakers uh, from Daniel Robinson to Doug Novak to Brendan Sir 
Tony Miller, Mike Weiner from the Indiana Pacers. We had Coach Holtman and Coach Diebler there again as well. And I'll be honest with you, Walt, I thought Monday was the most well-attended Monday we've had in a long time at the clinic. And I thought the lineup of speakers on Monday was phenomenal. They did a great job. Sunday was great, too. I tried to do some different things, uh, especially you, you saw we brought in the systems battle uh, at the end of day one with Tyler Costin, TJ Rosine, and Rick Torbert, where we did kind of a live scrimmage as they taught the locked left defense versus that read and react offense. So just a great two day clinic. Uh, I've been to a lot of clinics throughout the years and, you know, I know I'm, I'm a little bit biased cause I run the clinic, but I don't think there's a better clinic around a more well-attended clinic, uh, a better venue to host the clinic and just the speakers we get are phenomenal and they're just willing to give so much. And, you know, part of the thing that, that I'm seeing with clinics is attendance has dropped and it's dropped everywhere with clinics because a lot of people are just getting stuff online, you know, whether it's Twitter or YouTube or other social media avenues, they're getting stuff and they feel as though they don't need to go to the clinics because they can just sit at home and, and watch it from the comfort of their home. Well, Here's what people aren't getting by not going. They're not getting Rick Torbert and Tyler Costin staying 45 minutes after their presentation to discuss the read and react and lock left with coaches who have questions. They're not getting a Jeremy Hayes and a Shane Hennon who are going to the social and interacting with coaches and talking about skill development with coaches. They're not getting a Doug Novak staying after to talk about his post-development drills that he does with his players. And I, I just wish coaches would understand and recognize the value of the in-person clinics and, and how much more they can get by being there in person as opposed to just sitting at home in front of their computer on their phone and, and learning that way. And then it's just a great way to network to and connect with coaches across the state. And I mean, let's be honest, when we go to clinics, yeah, we all write down a ton of stuff, but if you can take one or two things back to your program that, that you want to implement that year, then the clinic has done its job. And sometimes those one or two things you get aren't from the speakers. They're from the interaction mm -hmm. with other coaches throughout the state that you right. have. So um, I, yeah. I think it's a great thing. I've been going since I've been coaching for 19 years now. I've been going to clinics, uh, in-person clinics, and just what I've got from them is, is just so much uh, that you just can't get in, in front of a screen. No, I, I think it's definitely something that, you know, being the Ohio coaches, we shouldn't take for granted. You know, I've, I like I'm sure you have. I've gone to the Nike championship clinics where you it's the top, it's the NBA coaches, it's the, you know, Coach Calipari, it's Lute Olson, it's, you know, the big, big name division ones. And, you know, some of those, I've, I've definitely learned some things, but I would put ours right there as far as the knowledge goes and the things you pick up. And we got to give a shout out to Coach Pickens from Ashland. Five months pregnant, right? Out there with, with Wilmington. The boys that were the demonstrators, I mean, she, she's out there bodying up the guys. And you told me afterwards, like, well, she was five months pregnant. I said, what? <laughs> yeah. Coach. She was awesome. Coach. Yeah. yeah. It's so easy to see why her teams are so successful. When, when you listen yeah. to her talk 
and just the command and presence she has on the court. It's just so easy to see why she has the success she does. And she's out there Ding up these guys and, and giving yeah. everything she has. And the one thing I would say about our speakers this year, and our speakers the past couple of years, I mean, we've had really, really good speakers. And like I said, speakers that are willing to share and give. You know, sometimes, and we're not knocking any coaches, sometimes these coaches come to speak at clinics and, and they don't want to share anything. They don't want to give away their secrets. Yeah. The coaches that we've had speak the past couple of years are willing to to share. They're willing to give knowledge to coaches. They're willing to answer mm -hmm. any questions that you have. And that's what I think makes our clinic unique in that way. Let's talk about your background. So let's, like we typically do, we like to start towards the beginning. You're a Dover high school graduate, a proud tornado. Um, and you played for legendary coach Bob Von Kennel. You were part of the state final four team in 2004. Um, you know, what are some of the lessons that have stuck with you over the years from your formative years playing at Dover? Yeah. So, you know, there's not a lot of people that can say they had an opportunity to play for a coach that's won over 700 games, is in multiple Hall of Fames. Uh, just recently was announced that he's going to be inducted into the Ohio Basketball Hall of Fame as well. So not many people have that opportunity like I did. And on top of that, not many people can say they also played for a JV coach that had over 400 wins as a JV coach and Mike Gunther. So I truly was blessed with my time uh, at Dover playing under Coach Gunther and Coach Von Kennel um, while I was in high school and in middle school. Uh, I played for a guy by the name of Brian Miller, and I also had the opportunity to be coached by my brother, Jared. So that was an experience in itself. But yeah, when, when I think back at my time at Dover and the things I pulled away, uh, a couple things were just the organization of the program top to bottom. Coach runs a, a first-class program. No detail is too small in his program. So organization was key. Preparation was another thing. I mean, we were always so prepared for our opponents and, and what they threw at us. And, and I just even look at the little things that we didn't practice. Like he taught us how to save a ball going out of bounds to a corner. He taught us how to pick up a loose ball, how to offensive rebound off a free throw, how to check out on a free throw. And we did those things every single night before our games. Like we had stations, even into my senior year when, I mean, we went to the final four and we were really good. We were still doing loose ball pickups before our regional final game. We were doing, how do you save a ball to the corner? You know, when to call a timeout on the floor when the ball's going out of bounds. Like those little details that so many coaches overlook because they're not sexy, right? They're not a sexy thing to do in practice. But at the end of the day, those little things win games. I can remember we would practice running a triangle in two, like in practice, you know, maybe five minutes here, five minutes there, you know, throughout the season. We never used it. Like we never used it. Until the one game when we played Coshocton and we ended up using it, went on a four-point swing, and that's the reason we won the game. But like just that detail, that preparation was so key. And that's why Coach has been so successful throughout the years. Because like I said, his organization, his attention to detail, his emphasis on Coach always said, if you can defend, if you can rebound, and you can make free throws you're going to be in any game. 
right? Because we all know defense travels. We all know if you can limit your opponent to one shot, one contested shot of possession, and in turn, try to get some offensive rebounds. And if you can make your free throws, you're going to be in most games. And he preached that, and he still preaches that. And coach hasn't changed his approach. I mean, in 40 years as a head coach, he's been doing the same thing, and it works. And so I was truly blessed to learn under two phenomenal coaches and to be a part of that program. And just, oh my gosh, the, the run to Columbus we had um, that year uh, was was memorable. You know, we're down, we're down 14 at halftime in a sectional final to Beaver Local. Uh, just weren't ready to play and end up winning by 16. You know, if our season very easily could have been over with in that sectional final. And then we make our way down the tournament trail and end up playing a Greenfield McLean team in the regional semis who had a player by the name of Dante Jackson. Dante Jackson was a freshman at that time, ended up playing at Xavier, and I believe is an assistant coach there now. Went, won that game, and it wasn't easy. And Dante was, he was legit as a freshman. And then we play a Columbus Beechcroft team in the regional finals, and we were up 17 at one point. He cut it to two with like two minutes to go in the fourth quarter. End up pulling that out. And then that week going into the state tournament, it's like, in your own world, you were like a mini rock star. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like we were fed every night. We were going to community events. We had this huge send off. Like we were rock stars. And, and so that was so much fun. And, you know, it didn't end the way we wanted it to. We ended up getting beat by one in the state semifinal to Ottawa Glandorf, who at that point in time had twin brothers by the name of Pollitz, uh, Tim and Eric Pollitz, who were really good players. And they had went through three years of getting beat by St. V's in the regionals when they had LeBron and they ended up breaking through. They beat us by one. And probably the toughest pill to swallow was is the next day then they turn around and beat Canal Fulton by almost 30 in the state finals. So that that was a tough pill to swallow knowing that, hey, we had a chance to be state champions, but no, so many, so many great memories, so many takeaways. So well, I guess I got to ask, was there a certain moment? Did you know in high school that you were going to want to coach someday? Or was it when, when you went on to, to Malone for undergrad? When was it? You know, it's funny. Uh, at Dover, so we practiced three hours, like pretty much every day. I mean, we cut it back a little bit as the season went on, but pretty much from 2.30 to 5.30 or 6, we, we were in the gym every day. And we practiced on Sundays too. We didn't like it. We Players hated it, but we did it right? Because that's what we thought we needed to do to win games. And, you know, there's the argument that you play on a Friday night, you know, well, we at Strasburg, you know, when you look at how much did we really get out of those Saturday practices? Not a lot. But in in my mind, I I just wasn't going to practice on Sunday. That was some that was family time for me. Um, My wife wasn't going to have it. So I wasn't going to do it. But when you look at just from a preparation standpoint, does practicing on Sundays make sense? 100% it makes sense. Anyway, so we would practice Monday, you know, play Tuesday, practice Wednesday, Thursday, play Friday, off Saturday, play Sunday. Well, the deal with Saturday was we had to coach bitty ball. So we were still getting up at like eight or nine o'clock to coach bitty ball. And boy, if, if we didn't win a game and we had to walk in and walk past Coach Von Kennel reading the newspaper on Saturday morning, having lost the game. Oh, my gosh, that was that was torture, my man. So. I coached a bitty ball team and the way it was arranged, we got to practice with the kids and then we got to coach the kids. So I think it was at that point, I kind of 
got the bug a little bit like, man, it's kind of fun. I kind of like doing this. Yeah. Yeah. But up up until I ended my basketball career at Dover, I thought I was going to play in college. Like that was the goal. Uh, like there was some D3 schools that had shown interest. Um, Malone had shown a little bit of interest and then kind of backed off and, and then came on again and ended up potentially only being like a, a walk-on type spot, nothing guaranteed. And you, you know what? After those four years at Dover, I, I was just, I was tired. I, I was, and I just knew my skill set. The player I needed to be at Dover to help us be successful, I didn't believe was going to translate to the college game. And, and I, I didn't think I was going to have a whole lot of success because I just didn't have, at that point, the skill set I thought. And I, I wasn't going to be able to play the position that they needed me to play in college. So at that point, I decided I, I wasn't going to play. Um, but it really wasn't, well, until midway through my sophomore year, I had a roommate who had started to get into some coaching. I'm like, man, that'd be pretty cool to, to start coaching in college and get some experience. And my brother, who was then the head coach at Dover, girls, um, gave me an opportunity to coach his summer league team. I went to Chicago and, and helped him coach his team there too. And, and so I started to really get that bug. And then my junior year, I ended up starting coaching. At, at Lake, where you were just like myself, and I'm sure a lot of coaches started cutting your teeth at the middle school level. And while <laughs> I, I can't say I'd be in a big rush to get back to coaching middle school, it was a blast. And I'm sure you would echo this because there's so much teaching you can do at that level. I mean, was that your experience at Lake? Yeah. And I ended up being a seventh grade coach uh, my junior year at Lake Middle School for the girls. And then my senior year, I was the eighth grade coach at, at Lake Middle School with the girls program. And I, Tom Grubb would have been the head coach and Mark Bird, the assistant coach. Um, so I had the opportunity to learn um, under them. But probably the, the, the person that made the biggest impact on my coaching career at Lake, and it would come full circle um, a few years later, where we would connect again was Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown was the AD at Lake at the time. And so I had the opportunity to get to know Bruce, um, learn from Bruce about, you know, not not just coaching, but, you know, how do you handle yourself as a coach? How do you run a program? How do you communicate with your players and your parents? So really learned a lot from Bruce during that time, as well as Coach Grubb and Coach Bird. But it was a great experience for me. I learned a lot. Uh, and, and, you know, I was coming in, I probably didn't handle myself as good as I needed to with middle school girls because at that point I only knew the Dover way and having been coached by Bob Von Kennel. And, you know, early on in my career, I had some girls crying and I was just being brutally honest with them and, and having to learn, like, you got to handle things a little bit differently, especially middle school girls. They're, they're just learning. And, you know, the one thing that I've always said, one of the biggest differences between guys and girls, girls have to feel good to play good. Guys have to play good to feel good. And so if girls don't feel good about where they're at and, and the skill set they have, and if they don't feel confident, they're not going to play well. And so having to learn to do that and being more positive, encouraging with the girls, I uh, just learned so many valuable things from that experience. And like you said, too, it allowed me to get my foot in the door, to cut my teeth. There wasn't a whole lot of expectations. You know, like Coach Boyce said uh, in, in the podcast we had with him, I was able to make a lot of mistakes and it was okay. 
And, and that was the most important thing. It wasn't on a big stage. It wasn't, you know, at a varsity level because, you know, at that point, I'm young, I'm dumb, I'm thinking, coaching's easy. Like, I can coach high school basketball in college. Like, yeah. I went to Dover. I played for Bob Von Kennel. I could do this. No, I, I, I couldn't. I had a lot to learn. So being able to make those mistakes and grow as a coach I, really benefited me down the road. So let's talk about down the road. You go a little, just shoot down 77. You know, after you graduate from, from Malone, get a job at Garraway. JV and varsity assistant for three years, correct? Before you take yes. over as the girls' head coach, yes. So that first year, you go nineteen and four. So, so what are some things that you know, looking back on that experience, that you feel you did right, and maybe what are some some things as you reflect that you wish you had a do over on? I went to Garraway, and I had the opportunity to learn under another Hall of Famer, a legend, uh, one of my really good friends, close friends, Scott Bardall, who Scott had coached at Orville with Steve Smith, then ended up coaching the girls. I came to Garraway, took the boys to a a state tournament, took the girls to the state tournament twice. So in my mind, coming down there, I mean, having the opportunity to coach JV, learn under him, I I mean, it it was the best thing for me. I played for Bob Vonkow now. I'm I'm, I'm coaching under Scott Bardall. So I do the JV thing for three years. And and right, everybody, everybody likes the JV coach. Everybody likes the assistant coach, Walt. I mean, you see it right now. Like, you walk in the gym, our players love you. They hate me. They love you. Like, Coach Serrato's coming in. Like, everybody loves the assistant. Yeah. The luxury of of always being able to play a good cop. Yes, everybody loves a JV coach. So I go through that time, great relationships with the kids. Coach decides to step away. Um, I go through the interview process. Um, It's between me and a couple other people. I get the job. We go 19 and four. Um, we started out a little bit slow, picked it up, ended up having some big wins against a Riverview team who at that point had a Doherty um, on that team. And there were three Doherty's that went through Riverview that were all really good. Uh, beat a Highland team um, that year, get into the tournament, roll through the sectional, end up playing a, a shady side team. And we're up, right? We're up nine, 10. And then Shadyside had a girl who who just goes off, ends up hitting eight threes against us, hits a half quarter going into halftime. Uh, that only that took him back to I think down two. They end up beating us, and um, you know I thought it was a really good season in my mind. At that point, I did a lot of things well. You know, it it was more hey look what I did. I'm a I'm a 23 24 year old head coach. I did this. I went 19 and four. Look at how good I coached. Look at what I did. And Walt, I got fired. In September, correct? Yeah. So what happened was, is so looking back on it, here's what happened. There were a couple parents that were upset with how I I handled their kids and and how I did things. So you got to understand something about Scott. Scott Bardall plays a particular style of basketball. Walt, we won a district final game against Fort Fry. My last year as a JV coach, 15 to 10. It was eight to six at halftime. And everybody laughs about it. It was the most exciting game I've ever been a part of because every possession mattered. And it was Scott Bardall versus Danny Litke from Fort Fry. And everybody knew that's the way the game was going to go. But Scott had a particular style. It was a deliberate style of basketball. Okay. He never told a kid not to shoot. 
Never once did he tell a kid not to shoot. Kids knew their roles. He was able to sell kids on their roles and get them to play as a team better than anybody I've ever seen as a coach. But people didn't like that. And towards the end, they grew, they, they, they just were upset with how he was running things. Even though he was winning and he put banners up in the gym and he treated the kids well. They just didn't like his style. I don't know. They must not have liked how much he won. I guess that wasn't important to them anymore. So I took over for him. And you got to understand, I played for Bob Bonkamp. I coached under Scott Bardall. That's what I knew. Yeah. That's what I knew. And so I went in there being that same way. And here's the thing. Looking back on it, I did a terrible job developing relationships with kids. I did a terrible job communicating with parents because I saw what Scott went through and I saw parents start chirping at Scott and chirping to administration. And I had the mentality that I'm not going to talk to you. Don't, don't talk to me. I'll talk to your going kids. There with a wall up. Yeah. A wall up before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not going to talk to you. I'm, I'm, I'll talk to your kids, but I'm not going to talk to you. But when I don't have a good relationship with kids, kids aren't going to come to me. And I was so intense and I was always like in that, that game mode, that intense mode. And I never let my guard down ever. And so, yeah, we went 19 and four. I don't know how much fun the kids had going 19 and four. I say all that with this. Looking back on it, do I think I should have been fired? No. And we'll get to that in a second. Do I think I should have done things differently? Yes. And a lot of young coaches go through this. It's not about us. We don't win the games. The players win the games. Yep. And I was too young, and like I said, too dumb, and I thought it was all about me. We get to the end of the season. There's some parents upset with how I handled things. And, and you know how these parent things work. A lot of things that are said are half-truths or they didn't happen. But if you yep. get enough people, they'll start believing it. Sure. And so I sit down. I talk to my administration, um, who at that point, the superintendent was a guy by the name of Daryl Jones, who actually coached my brother at John Glennon High School. And so Daryl and I sat down and sat down with Teresa Alberts and Jason Phillips, and we talked. and. Hey, things, things were going to be okay. Hey, we're going to be good. Go through the summer. Um, things go well in the summer. Like, go great. Mm-hmm. Now, understand something. We had 13 kids my first year. We went 19 and four, had 13 kids, and played a J- full JV schedule. Oh, okay. Okay. I go into the summer. We have 18 kids. I actually have kids that quit before, come back out. So, in my mind, things go good. Our numbers yeah. are up. And over the course of the next two or three years, I thought we could make a couple runs at Columbus. Well, I get a call after my first open gym in September from the then new superintendent who said, Adam, I, I don't think you have the votes. And I can remember where I was. I was sitting on my basement steps and I'm listening to this. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I'll be honest, I didn't handle it well. I did, but what 24, 25 year old would at that point? You know, you're like blindsided. I go through the whole summer, everything's good. And then yeah. boom. And, and what happened was, is a couple parents got the ears of the board members. And mm-hmm. there were two or three of them who they ended up saying, yeah, we, we just can't vote to renew this guy. And, you know, there was a couple board meetings and I had players and parents go and support me. And, um, you know, they wanted me like, well, fight it. I, I can't fight it. It's, it's a one year. They can do what they want. They don't have to renew me. They can get rid of me for anything. Yeah. And so that was, it was a tough time. And I, I was bitter about it. 
and I, I, I can't say that I'm still not a little bit bitter about it. People who say that, oh, you know, I, I've let it go. And yeah, I, 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 I'm not that kind of person. It still mm-hmm. bothers me. But I think I've looked back on it now and reflected. And hopefully, you know, when I have the opportunity to talk to young coaches and share my experiences, hopefully some of the young coaches don't make the same mistakes that I did. But I, I think the biggest thing, like I said, it's not about you. It's about those kids. Check your ego at the door. You haven't arrived. You don't know everything. Be humble. Listen. You know, God gave us one mouth and two ears for a reason, right? That's what everybody says. Absolutely. Yep. I didn't do that. So things fizzle out of Gareway. Move on to to Tusky Central Catholic, where you coach. Now, was Tyrone at the time uh, a brother-in-law or had that transpired yet? Yeah, Tyrone um, Miller, who's now at Indian Valley, um, yep. he he was my brother-in-law. And literally that next day, he offered me a job on his staff. Yeah. So you get that experience. You get a, a taste of the uh, the private school setting, which, you know, we've both had that experience. And I, I think it's valuable to see the other side, to see a private school setting, especially when you're used to a public school setting. And speaking of public schools, Strasburg. You get the job at Strasburg and, and, you know, back on the boy side of things. And I, I would say Northeast Ohio, uh, Strasburg is one of the few schools where basketball truly is king. I mean, there's a lot of good basketball schools in Northeast Ohio, but football trumps all and a lot of those, but not at Strasburg. You know, you're going through that process. You, you get hired for the job. Obviously, growing up right next door in Dover, you probably have some sense of appreciation of the history there. But was there a certain moment in that hiring process or maybe that first season where it really sit in like, whoa, this is a big deal? Yeah. You know, I, I speak on the central thing just for a couple moments here. You know, I'm very appreciative for what Ty did in bringing me on. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you what, being an assistant coach, it ain't a bad gig. It, it really isn't. I got to sleep at night. I got to eat. No, I, I, I can I would, attest to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... <laughs> I, I, I would get I would give suggestions to Tyrone that would probably piss him off and then I'd walk out and I'd go home and play with my kids and he'd be sitting there stewing on it. But it was a great experience. We had such good kids, great families. And so I was there for two years. You know, I wanted to be a head coach again. So I had interviewed at, at Maslin Perry and was the finalist for the girls job and ended up getting beat out by a guy by the name of Jeff Kudo, who at that point was at Louisville and, and Jeff's phenomenal coach, way better than me, deserved to get the job. And then I get a call from Scott Bardall, who actually Strasburg called Scott first. And at that point, oh, Scott yeah. didn't Scott didn't want it. And what you have to understand is Strasburg was in a bad place at that point. Yeah. You know, they're they're the eighth winningest program in the state of Ohio with over fifteen hundred wins. But at that point, the past fifteen eh, ten years, not ten years they they were kind of struggling, went through two or three coaches. And, and the last coach, who's now a really good friend of mine, um, and he actually ended up sending his son back to Strasburg for a senior year, and we had the opportunity to coach him. It, it, it didn't go well for him. Um, it didn't end well. And there was some some issues within the community because a lot of them liked the former coach. And, 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 and then this new guy was being brought in. But So I had interviewed at Perry, got turned down. And then I got a phone call a couple hours later uh, from the then acting superintendent um, at Strasburg who called me and he said, hey, Adam, are, are you at all interested in the Strasburg job? Scott Bardall recommended you. 
And I said, yeah, I, I'd be more than willing to sit down and talk. And so Gary Spinell, the AD, called me and, and we met at Subway and, and we talked for about, I think it was about an hour and a half. And I laid out my vision for the program, not really knowing anything about the program. Talked about the things I would do. And you know how you go and interview and you got all these nice, this nice portfolio. And this is how I'm going to market. This is my offensive philosophy and defensive philosophy and overall philosophy. And so when I get to the end of the interview, Gary looks at me and says, Adam, this is awesome. Like, th- this is great. I love what you did. Or he said, Adam, he said, I don't know if we got enough kids to have a team. So you take that binder and you just throw it away and you're just starting from scratch, right? Because you have all these things you want to do. And then you realize, all right, well, the first thing I got to do is recruit kids and develop relationships with kids to get kids to play so we can feel the team. So I go through that process with Gary and then I interview with Cindy Brown, who was taking over that year. Well, Cindy Brown happens to be the wife of Bruce Brown, who was at Lake when I got hired at Lake. Bruce had retired at Lake. Cindy and Bruce moved down to Strasburg. Bruce was going to support Cindy now and her dream of being a superintendent. He had retired and was going to do work with the OI AAA. So I interviewed with Cindy. She offered me the job. I said, give me 24 hours. And I thought about it and I thought about it. And, you know, it, it was just a fear, the fear of the unknown and knowing where the program was. Can I be successful? Can I do this? I had people call me and say, don't take it. It's a mess. It's a disaster. Um, if you're not from Strasburg, it's not going to work out. So I call Cindy back the next day and I say, hey, I can't do it. And there is this awkward, long pause. And she says, why? And I said, ah, you know, just family reasons. And that's all I say. And she's very short with me. And she says, thank you, and hangs up. And so about an hour later, and so, and so before I get to that, at that point, I called my then assistant, Kelly Heron, who was going to be on my staff. And I said, hey, we're not going to do it. And Kelly's like, okay. So about an hour later, I get a call from her husband, Bruce Brown. And they're down at the state baseball tournament. And Bruce Brown is on the phone with me for an hour and a half. And by the end of that conversation, I was ready to run through a brick wall for that guy. And I called Cindy back and I took the job. And so then I had to call Kelly back and tell Kelly, I said, are you still in? He said, yeah, I guess so. And so ended up taking the job. No, wait, I got to interrupt. Did, did Cindy know that that phone call with Bruce happened? Oh, yeah. Or what was going to happen? Okay. okay. Yeah, she, she told him, she told him to call. And if anybody listening to this knows Bruce Brown, he's very persuasive. He is very persuasive. And, and I tell you what, I'm indebted to that guy and Cindy forever because if it wasn't for him calling me, I wouldn't be in the position I am today as a coach. And in regards to my role with the OHSBCA, I just wouldn't be where I'm at had he not made that phone call and him and Cindy and Gary believed in me enough to give me the opportunity. Because you got to understand, they're taking a chance too. They're taking a chance on a head coach who got fired after going 19 and four. And anytime a coach gets fired after going 19 and four, People are thinking the worst happened, right? Red flag. Yeah. Red flag, red flag. And so they took a chance on me. And you know, well, I can remember my first team meeting we had. We had like 12 kids there. And like in, in my mind, like, hey, I'm excited, right? It's better than three or four kids. And so because sure. it was so late in the summer, we only had an opportunity to do a couple league nights. We had a few team practices. And then we just did individual workouts. And our first league night, well, here were the scores. I wrote them down. Okay, and I still remember him. 30 to 2, 26 to 4, 19 to 1, and 30 to 10. 
these were 15-minute running clock games. I go home and I contemplated not sticking it out. I told my wife, I said, I, I can't do this because not to be arrogant, I had never gotten beat before. Like Dover, we won. Garraway, yeah. we won. Lake, we won. Central, we won. I had never gotten beat. I had never experienced a losing season as a player or coach at that point. And, and we're getting drilled. And, and then we have one of our team practices. And one of the drills we do requires kids to run around the chair and shoot a bank shot. And the first three kids that shot it, one hit it off the side of the backboard, one hit the bottom of the rim, and one shot it to the opposite side of the square and missed the rim completely. And, and in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, what, what am I going to do? Like, how, where do I even start? But as we went through the course of the summer, it got better. Kids bought into the work. And that's kind of how we, we started our program to build it. Six wins that first year? It was a, it was a rough year. We were six, and I, I think it was 17. And like we had some pretty rough beatings, like getting beat by 40, getting beat by 30. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel as though. We beat the teams that we should have beat. There wasn't like a win. I don't think we beat a team that we shouldn't have beat. We okay. beat the teams we should have beat. We had some lesser opponents um, mm-hmm. on our schedule that year that we eventually upgraded. But it was a it was a, it was a trying year. I mean, it, it. Luckily, I had Bruce who helped me out. I had Kelly Heron uh, on my staff who Kelly had been a head coach. You know, obviously Bruce had been a head coach at multiple schools, assistant coach at Bowling Green. Then I had a guy by the name of Brett Hirschberger, who was my JV coach who had, who had played at Strasburg and is on the Mount Rushmore players at Strasburg. I had him there too. So they helped me get through it, but a lot of, a lot of sleepless nights. Um, but it was, we were just laying the foundation, you know, here's how we're yeah. going to do things. You know, the winds might yeah. not come right now, but Doggone it, this is what we're going to do. We're going to build our program on defense. Um, we're going to be the hardest playing team, and that's what we're going to be known for. And we stuck to our guns. And, you know, there there were some issues that we had to deal with, just some lingering issues with players and parents and just culture issues that we had to to clean up. But I want to trade that that experience for anything. It made me such a so much better of a coach. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, sure, at the time, it's as a competitor, it sucks. It sucks to lose. But – Man, does it appreciate it when you get things going in the right direction. You appreciate those times when, like you said, some more of those sleepless nights. So you guys hit your stride, you know, that that three-year, right before I came on the staff, 2019, that 2016, 2019, have a couple really good classes come through. You guys win three league titles, make it to two district title games. And unfortunately, weren't able to get over the hump there. And then the spring of 2019, you announced your plans to resign from Strasburg as a head coach. You know, take us back to this time and what was your thought process and what ultimately led you to take the position back uh, about a month later where you'd lead the Tigers boys program for the next three years. Yeah, so I spent five years at Strasburg up to that point. And like you said, those last three years were really good. We had uh, three straight 21 seasons, three straight league titles, made it to the district all three years, lost in the district finals twice, um, district semis once. And I had really, really good players um, from Shevin Jabbersack to Henry Malkowitz, Jared Burnworth, Jay Tobacco, then, you know, Andrew Cregan, Race King. Then I had Mike and Mitch Neenthal, who uh, will go down as, as legends at Strasburg. Um, for how they were able to be successful, not just basketball, but golf and baseball as well, and just tremendous kids to coach. And yeah. guys like Jacob Farthing, Jared Willoughby, DJ Seward, just, just to name a few. I had really, really good players. And it wasn't me 
it was them and it was it was fun and we were packing gyms we were selling out gyms our district final game i think it was 16 17 was standing room only at philly like they were standing three rows in the mezzanine um it, it was just phenomenal and we lose to malvern that year and then the next year we lose to river in, in the district semis which i think was our best shot to get to columbus um and then the next year we lose to Highland in the district final again. And, you know, the, the biggest thing I regret, you know, I look back on on my time at Strasburg and I feel as though I cost us a couple of those tournament games just because I, I can get stubborn. And, and Walt, you know that. And as coaches, we can get stubborn a lot of times and get stuck in our ways. And I was a man-to-man guy, like, and I still am a man-to-man guy. And I may practice them, yep. but I never use it. Like, I, I, I'm stubborn. We're going to play man. And that's all we're going to play. And we're going to be really good at it. You know, that, that last year before I had resigned, we had a really good team and we played some tough competition. We ended up going to Maslin, beat Maslin, lost to a really good Fort Lormie team in Indiana by five or six. And like we, we, we knew that year we were going to be really special. And so we had played Highland three times, right? Two times in the season, then in the district final. And, you know, I never changed what I did schematically defensively. I just played man. And the previous two times they beat us. And the third time, they beat us. And I, I, I regret that because I was so stubborn and so stuck in my ways that this is what we're going to do. And in all honesty, I, I wasn't willing to listen to anybody either because I had peak coaches in my ear saying, hey, we got to change things up. It's like, you know, we would go zone for a possession and give up an open shot. They might not even have made it, and I would get out of it. Mm-hmm. Or they might have made a three when we were in zone, and I would get out of it. But they made eight mm-hmm. threes against our man. Yeah. And I think I'm not the only coach that struggles mm-hmm. from that. The other thing is that, that I think I've learned is as I've gotten older and, and more seasons as a coach, like sometimes we can overcoach and we can, can try to control things too much and want everything to look pretty. And it's, it's, it's not, a, it's just not a pretty game. It's a game of mistakes. And you know, the old quote, the, the team, the team that wins is the team that makes the fewest mistakes, not doesn't make any mistakes that makes the fewest. And I feel as though offensively, I, I, I tried to maybe control things a little bit too much rather than just let them play and, and use their creativity because I had really skilled players. But I look back and like those are things that I've learned from now. But man, do I regret not realizing that in that moment because I think we could have made a couple state tournament runs. But yeah, after I ended that season in 2019, I was tired. Strasburg's a different community. And, and, and like you said, it is a basketball town. And listen, when, even in those years, we were good. When we would lose games, I would have people come up to me and question why we did what we did. And we're winning 20 games and we're winning league titles and they're still coming up. Or It's a smart basketball crowd too. They know the 100%. Game. And I call it the Downtown Coaches Association. And most communities have that where you get those those groups of people that go to breakfast at the different restaurants and then they just analyze everything you do. So I had the Downtown Coaches Association coming up and questioning me. But it was hard. It was it was stressful. I felt an obligation because of the program and, and its status and, and where it was and how it was viewed across the state of Ohio. I had to ensure that we got it back to where it was. So it took a lot of work. I was tired. I had three kids at that. Like, I'm tired. So I resigned. And my AD told me not to do it. My superintendent told me not to do it. Actually, I had two board members vote against accepting my resignation. Now, I think they did it just out of respect 
for what we had done. So I resigned. And at that point, I was the principal too, Walt. I was a principal and superintendent there for six years. I was the principal. And probably the worst thing I did was I sat in on the interviews. Never should have done that. I never should have sat in on the interviews. So as I sat in on these interviews, and I think we interviewed some really good people, but I knew in my mind how I ran it. And I'm thinking like, well, that person's going to have to do it the same way I did it because, hey, look where we're at now. And if I'm going to be the principal there, like we're going to do it the right way. Well, there's more than one way to run a program. Obviously, we've seen multiple coaches do it different ways and experience yeah. success. And so the worst thing I did was sit in on those interviews. And then when we got done with the second round, I looked at Gary and Gary looked at me and he said, Adam, you need to just take it back because like, no one's going to do it the way you want to do it. And at that point in time, once I got through those second rounds, I was having those regrets like, man, do I really want to get out? And I felt like I got out for the right reasons. Family, I was tired. I wasn't the best husband. I wasn't the best father that I needed to be. And I probably well, wasn't the best administrator I needed to be. Yeah. So what's, what's that phrase? Yeah, I, I got to jump in here because we got to share this. There's a phrase that I learned from you. You say that I love. It's, you know, our family, our loved ones, our friends, they don't always get the best of us. They get the rest of us. No, and, and they do. And that's, that's with every coach. And that's why I wish sometimes yeah. these parents and these community members would understand the sacrifices that coaches make yeah. and the time it takes away from their families. Our families never get the best of us. They only get the rest of us. And, and you think about yeah. how much time we spend pouring into these people's sons or daughters, mm -hmm. and then they want to come back and question us. And like, that's the part that drives me nuts. When, when you hear some of these parents, some of these administrators, some of these boards, some of these communities that are running these coaches out for these ridiculous reasons, when at the end of the day, they're, they're giving to your sons or daughters more than they're giving to their own families. But yeah, that, that's what was happening. That's what I was experiencing. So after Gary makes that comment, I go back, I talk to my wife and, and we make some adjustments and, and I, I, I make the decision that, hey, there's certain things that I can delegate because I'm a terrible delegator. There's certain things that I can delegate, give to my assistants that would allow, free up some more time for me to be with my family more. And, and, and just making sure that during the day, I'm locked into my role as an administrator. And then, man, once that 2.30 hits, then, then my focus is on that basketball piece. And I, I thought they were, they were mixing too much. You know what I mean? Because as coaches, it's hard for us to turn our brain off. But in order for me to lead a building, to, to, to be the best mentor I can be to my teachers, the best, the best uh, example I can be to the students, I've got to be fully invested in that. And so in my mind, making those few subtle changes, I decide, hey, I can do this. I resigned in one month and then was hired back the following month. Coincidentally enough, 2019, not long after you uh, accept the position again and reclaim your spot as, as the varsity boys head coach is when our coaching journey together began. You know, we knew each other a few years prior to that. We were kind of circling each other and, um, you know, stars aligned and I was able to join your staff, um, you know, as an outsider coming in, one of the things that struck me the most was just how well oiled the basketball machine was at Strasburg, uh, that you guys had built. So multiple choice question here. If you had to only credit one of the following things, one of the following factors for building that well-oiled machine, what would it be and why? Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Was it A, the, the, the force of your personality, you, Adam Hall, putting your imprints on the program? 
B, was it the buy-in and support from parents? C, support from the community and the school? Or was it D, something else? What would you credit as the biggest factor to getting that program where it was? In regards to the support from the community, that that's always there at Strasburg. I mean, like you said, it's a basketball town. We could win zero games and we're still going to have great crowds. So mm-hmm. that support was always there. The buy-in from the parents, uh, th- that that was there too. I, we didn't have, I think I had two or three parent meetings in my eight years at Strasburg. Like we didn't have mm-hmm. parent issues. As far as my personality goes, I mean, obviously I think your teams are a reflection of you as a coach. And anybody who has watched me coach, I am very passionate. I'm intense. I hold kids accountable. You know, what they don't always see is the relationships off the court. Um, I I would say the biggest thing that helped our program become a well-oiled machine would have been the buy-in that we got from the players in regards to how hard you had to work to be successful and win basketball games. Had we not had that buy-in, had we not had that work ethic, had that not been there, we wouldn't have been as well oiled of a machine as we were. And it started out when we were winning six games. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? We started to build that there, that work ethic, that intensity, that that extra de- degree of effort that you're going to put into things, you know, getting 1% better uh, every day. Having that buy-in from that standpoint was huge. Obviously, my personality and being able to push the kids helped. Um, my staff pushing the kids to not settle for anything less than their best. And Coach Heron always said, good enough never is. I, I think that was important. But you also don't get that from the players. You know, there's an old saying, like, I, I love to ask this question in interviews. Do you want your players to respect you or to like you? And a lot of people will come back with what? Respect. I want them to respect me. They have to respect me. Oh, I get that. But if they don't like you, it's never going to work either. If they don't like you, they're not going to respect you. And so I was really good at pushing them, holding them to a high standard. But then I was also really good at communicating with kids, developing relationships with kids. Well, we never let a kid leave the gym or go home who we had gotten on in practice without talking to that kid, either during the practice or after the practice. And I made it a habit to try to text two or three kids every night after practice, random kids. Hey, great practice. Or, hey, I know you struggled tonight. Let's have a great day tomorrow. I was always in communication with my players. And I I think that's important. And we don't always do that. You know, back in the 1980s, 1990s, you know, you could rip a kid, send them home and say, just let the kids figure it out. Kids cannot figure it out on their own anymore. I, I believe that. They cannot figure it out. Okay. You have to help them in this journey along the way. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so we always tried to do that. So then 2021, which ended up being your final year at Strasburg, um, you were named the superintendent of the entire district. You know, being a varsity head coach and superintendent is not something a whole lot of coaches can say they've done. Did that experience change your perception of being a head coach? It was hard. Okay. Um, I knew Cindy Brown was going to leave a superintendent. And so I had gotten all my coursework done and things like that. And, you know, talking to multiple board members and, you know, the plan was for me to take over. Now we still had to go through the process, obviously. So we go to the process and I have my interview as superintendent and it was an hour and a half and 20 minutes of it was about superintendent. The other hour and 10 minutes was about me coaching and being superintendent. And I was just unwilling to give up coaching. I I wasn't going to do it. I still 
love to coach. I love the game. And so we had those conversations. And I mean, there was about a three-week window there where I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if I was going to be named superintendent. I didn't know if I was going to be named superintendent only if I gave up coaching. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I'm talking to you. I'm talking to my assistant, Bobby Nintal, who's who's phenomenal, great guy. And I'm like, guys, listen, you you might have to take this thing over. It wasn't until mid-June when I was hired. And I can remember we were doing multiple things. And I'd be leaving to take phone calls to talk to board members, to talk to other mm-hmm. people about this. Because it was kind of split. You know, the community was split. It wasn't that they didn't think I could do it. It was one of those, well, it's never been done before. Well, that doesn't mean it can't be done. You know, yeah. and, and looking back on it now, you know, in, in, in the moment I was pissed because people were questioning whether I could do both. I get it. Yeah. But it ended up being a, a 3-2 vote for coach and a 4-1 vote for superintendent just because they didn't agree with me coaching in my role as superintendent as well. And so we get through the summer, things go well, start the school year, and we get to about October. And I can remember having the conversation with you in our weight room and, and, and Bobby saying, guys, I, I might have to step away. Like I, I just, it was too much. It, it was too much to be superintendent, head coach, and, and, and to, to continue to be a great father, a great husband, all that stuff too. And so I talked to a couple board members and I'm like, listen, I, I can't. And they're like, no, you're going to do it. We want you to do it. You have to do it. So I ended up doing it. And we had a great season. We won 15 games, got to this, got a tough draw uh, in, the, in, the, in the sectional tournament, which you know, I, I'm super glad we're having the max prep ratings come in because we were one of those teams that suffered from a couple coaches not voting us where we should have been. And and therefore, we got a tough draw, ended up losing in the sectional final when I think we probably could have made it to a district that year. Uh, but it was hard that year. I mean, I, I was not the coach I wanted to be. There was a lot of stuff that I normally wouldn't pass off and take care of that I was doing it. I just felt as though my attention to detail when it came to things just wasn't there just because my mind was elsewhere because I was now in charge of a whole district of the 600 students that were, that were in that district. And my, my focus was so many hours. Yeah, you're right. And and there was always something with that job too. So I, I I resigned as, as head coach at the banquet. And I, I think everybody knew it was coming. Anybody who had kind of followed that year and it just, it was tough. It was hard. Yeah. So let's move on, you know, to your current position. Where, where we both are now at, at Canton South, you know, heading into our second year together um, with the Lady Wildcats, you know, and this, this chapter of your coaching book is still being written, but what are some of the lessons you've learned over the first year and a half on the job at Canton South? When I resigned as, as head basketball coach and I'm sitting in my office and about a month later and I'm, I'm doing my superintendent stuff, once again, I have those thoughts like, God, I'm 37 years old. Is this really, do I want to give up coaching yet? Because I still love the game. I still, you know, my why, right? Everybody says, what's your why? Okay. Well, my my why is serving others and impacting young people. Mm -hmm. And my role as superintendent, I I didn't feel as though I had the interactions and the impact on kids that I even did when Mm -hmm. I was principal. And even as principal, I didn't feel as though I had that as when I was a teacher. I kind of had those thoughts like, I don't want to continue to get further away from kids. When you know what your why is, then your what becomes easier. And my what and how I can impact kids and how I felt as though I did the best job at doing that was coaching. And so I'm starting to think like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? 
is this is this it for me? Am I no longer going to coach? And I ran into my good friend, Brett Yeagley, who was then superintendent at Kent Local, still is today. And he had a girl's job open. I kind of joked around with him. And I'm like, hey, you know, you, you don't find me for that girl's job, man. Give me a call. Well, I don't hear anything from him. And then about middle of April, he calls me and says, hey, do you really want to do this? And I said, I, I don't know, Brett. I yeah, I didn't know anything about their program at all. But he said, hey, look, I got I got this coaching job for you. And I got a dean of students job for you. And at that time, well, you know, when I looked at the financially, because that's, a, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was a financial decision too. Financially, it was a better move for me. I went through the process with Brett. I went through it. I actually, same thing I did at Strasburg. I turned it down. I, I turned the job down. And then he calls me a week later when I'm in Washington, D.C. And he, he offers me again. And Brett's just like Bruce Brown. And he's a great salesman. And I knew the athletic director, Matt Dennison. And I accepted the job on a Saturday. And then on Tuesday, okay, it was going to be announced Tuesday afternoon. I was contemplating turning it down. And then Tuesday at noon, I'm sitting in a meeting. And all of a sudden, what comes across my Twitter feed? A post from Big Time Sports that says, Adam Hall is the new head coach. I can't south. And at that point in time, I'm like, well, I guess we're doing this thing, right? I guess we're doing it now. Charlie Jones just made it official. Um, but, you know, it was just the unknown. It's the fear of the unknown. And I think that's what stops a lot of us from venturing out and trying new things. It's just that fear of the unknown. We just don't want to get out of our comfort zone. We tell our players all the time, you got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. As adults, we're not that way. We like to be in our comfort zone. When we get taken out of that, oh boy, we get anxious. We get nervous. I accept the job and it's been great. I needed this change up um, in, in my life. It's been great for myself. It's been great for my family. I think I've become a better coach because I had been communicating in one way for so long. Now I've had to learn how to communicate in a different way because, I mean, girls aren't going to respond to the yelling, the theatrics, the way that boys might. Now, your message can be the same, yeah. but the delivery of that message has to be different, yeah. Walt. And yeah. you, you've known that. You've seen that. You, we've been at Charlottesville. Yeah. We've been here. But yeah. I, I love the kids I coach. We're trying to build the program. Now, there's bumps along the way. Mm -hmm. People who say, hey, your second year is tougher than your first year. I, I, I can see that. Because when you, when, you know, when you think you got it going, then you experience another bump. And, uh, and you, and you got to maneuver that. But I feel as though we're headed in the right direction. We got kids in the gym. They're working hard. We're getting kids to show up to things. It's it's just going to take time, um, similar to what it what it took at Strasburg. But I feel as though, gosh, in this just a short year and a half, I've become a much better coach, a much better communicator, and I've become a much better teacher of the game as well. So I just want to dive in some odds and ends questions that I had for you here. Um, and like I said, I, I'm pretty privileged because I, I've seen I've seen you up close and personal and, and um, like some of our listeners may not have. And some of our listeners have, have probably competed against you and maybe have, have seen you up close and personal as well. But I think one of the things that you do that I think does not get enough credit is your ability to build a basketball program beyond just the varsity team. You know, the fundraisers, the youth program, you know, special events for the kids, community outreach, so on. You know, we've had so many coaches on our pod since we started this have shared so many great ideas of ways to do that. Um, but, but how do you feel you've evolved as a program builder since your start at Garraway? Well, if we start 
from a youth standpoint, what we've been really successful at is um, at Strasburg, we started a little hoopsters program, which is a, a dribbling skills and performance team, uh, third through sixth grade. And if you wanted to be on the travel team, you also had to be in that. Four straight years, our kids have a ball in their hand. They're doing ball handling once or twice a week for an hour and 15 minutes. They're performing at games. They're doing routines. We performed at um, Cleveland Charge games. We performed at uh, the state final four uh, in Columbus one year. And, and people can say, well, well, yeah, you're just doing stationary ball handling. You're doing tricks and stuff like that. Well, yeah, but it's fun. Kids have a ball in their hand and they're gaining confidence. When we do workouts, well, we still do stationary ball handling. And I know there's a ton of people out there, a lot of these workout guys that say, why would you ever do that? Five minutes of it isn't a bad thing to warm up and for, and for girls or boys to gain confidence. We implemented that. Huge success. Saw the benefits of it. We did our travel teams. You know, we started in November, played in a league, did three or four tournaments. I always did a coaching clinic with my coaches, told them exactly what we wanted. We would run the read and react offense, which I think for youth programs, every youth program should be running the read and react offense. And this is not a pitch for Rick Torbett. It is easy. It is simple. Your coaches can watch it online. There's easy drills to implement. Anybody can do it. And it's a great foundation. It's a great base. And then, you know, middle school, making sure you get the right people in there that are going to do it the way you want to do it. You have expectations. You tell those coaches those expectations. You hold them accountable to those expectations. We never want our teams playing zone. If we had coaches playing zone, we told them they're not playing zone. We had a specific offense we wanted them to run. We had drills we wanted them to do. We had terminology that we wanted them to do. Because when they get to high school, we want to build. We don't want to have to go back and reteach. That's frustrating. We want to yeah. be able to build. We want them to understand certain concepts. So I think that that vertical alignment in your program is so important. And you have to get the right people in place. As far as, um, you know, I'm very passionate about promoting programs. I think anybody that's followed our program could say, whether it was at Strasburg or Kent South, very active on social media, promoting kids, getting stuff out there all the time. I try to do one to two posts a day, even in the off season for any program I've been a part of. I think mm -hmm. it's important to promote your kids. It's important to promote your program. And I think what it does too is it kind of tells the story of your program and it kind of keeps sometimes the parents at bay because they're seeing what's going on. The community yep. seeing what's going on. When they see, and when people see the good things going on, they want to support a good thing, right? Sure. So, Doing that. And, and, and there's a lot of schools that don't want to bother with social media. That's fine. But I don't think it's the right thing to do. That's the era right. we live in. Yeah. That, that, you, you need to promote your kids on social media. You have to. Like, you have to promote your program. Um, we did a media guide, Walt. And I got this from a lot of my ideas came from Mandy Montgomery, who we had on the podcast, who's mm -hmm. a mentor of mine. Um, mm -hmm. I did a media guide every year at Strasburg. Seven years out of my eight, we did a media guide and it grew every year. I've seen some college media guides. And if you ask a lot of people who've seen ours, it's better than a college media guy. Mm -hmm. And we gave it away for free. And it probably cost us about $15 a piece to print because we did it in all color. And my last year, I think it was 120 pages. But we gave it away for free. And we would fundraise to be able to give it away for free. Mm -hmm. But it was something that people liked. And it told the story of our program. It was the history of our program. Okay, we've had two, We had two video boards at Strasburg. We would do an intro video. We would turn off the lights. We would make our basketball games an event, yep. period. Trying to make the kids feel special and be like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. I'm on that video board? Like, that's yeah. awesome. You know, at, at Canton South this year, we have a theme for every single home game. 
And, and, and what I'm trying to do is, is I'm trying to get people into the gym, just like we did at Strasburg. But when we would turn off the lights at Strasburg and that video would play, oh my gosh, the gym was rocking. I contracted with a company, Storied Rivals, to document our journey throughout the season. Like when I first did it, people in our area were like, this is stupid. What are you doing? But now there's like five or six programs in our area that do it because it's unbelievable. It is a, it is a, it's better than a scrapbook. This is a DVD they can have forever that documents their journey. So doing those different things, I think are important. But then again, Walt, in order to do those things, you have to be able to fundraise. And my philosophy has always been, I don't want to do the nickel dime fundraisers. I don't want to do the apparel fundraisers. I don't want to do the um, selling candy bars or things like that. I want to do the fundraisers that give you the most bang for your buck. Shootathons are easy. Tie it into your apparel sale, right? Tie it in your apparel sale where, hey, maybe your cost for apparel for each kid's $100. Well, maybe you tell them they have to raise $250 and they get their apparel for free. You're telling me a parent's not going to make that kid hustle to get that money? They're going to make that kid hustle. But I mean, we raised eight to $10,000 a year at Strasburg doing that. We ran a youth tournament. Our youth tournament was one of the best around, and we do it at Canton South too. We had 72 teams last year at our youth tournament in its first year. If you do it right, a youth tournament is a great fundraiser. Probably one of the most enjoyable things that I did fundraising-wise is we held a tip-off banquet. Well, you were there for a lot of them. We had four years yeah. where we ran a tip-off banquet, and we did a really nice restaurant. We tried, charged $25 a ticket. And the reason we charge that amount is because you just know your community too, right? Like mm -hmm. we couldn't charge 50 or 75. We weren't going to get the people there. $25 ticket. We had 200 seats. We sold out every year. And every year I would bring in a speaker to speak. So we would eat. I would get up, introduce my seniors, talk about them, give a charge for the season. And then we would have a speaker come in and speak. And we would try to bring back alumni to speak. And the, the thing we did with it too is we always did a silent auction. And by the end of year four, we were up to like 32 items for our silent auction. We would do autographed jerseys, tickets to Browns games, Cavs games. We had people donate things. And we would end up raising like seven or $8,000 on that silent auction alone. Now, we didn't make much money on admission because that covered the cost of food and the renting of the space. Where you made your money was on the silent auction. But what it did was is it kicked off our season. It generated buzz. We did an open practice every year. We'd have meet the teams and then we'd run an open practice. And I would always tell the people, like, I'm going to run a practice the way I run a practice. It was never a dog and pony show. What that did was that allowed people to see what we did. And they mm -hmm. saw the detail, the structure, the organization. And we opened it up to our community. And I think that's a huge thing if you can do that as well. And, and just be creative and be unique. And there's not dumb ideas. Like, try it. If it doesn't work, you don't do it again. All right. So you kind of alluded to this, my next question here earlier, but you know, anyone that's been around you when you're on the sidelines would be able to see your passion and intensity pretty evidently. Um, Soft-spoken is not a word I would use to describe your coaching <laughs> style. Um, is there somewhere that that fire that you bring on a daily basis and you really do, it's not like just on game night. It is every day in practice. That that fire, where does that come from? Or is it just Mountain Dew and energy drinks? A lot of it's the latter. <laughs> I want my teams to be a reflection of me. I feel as though if I'm not passionate and I'm not on fire for what I do, how are we going to ask our kids to be that way? And I'm not saying yeah. it's always right. And I'm not saying... There's not times I shouldn't dial it back. And I'm not saying there's not times that I've regretted some of the things I've done and in the moments and how I've handled myself. Um, I'm a guy that wears my emotions on my sleeve. I've tried to tone it back 
And that's why I said, like, at Can't Sound, like, it's, it's helped me. It's helped me become a better coach. Because, like I said, sometimes girls just, they don't respond to that. And you've got to deliver the message in a different way. And I wonder, at Strasburg, if I would have delivered that message the same way I'm delivering it now at South, would I have gotten a little bit more out of some players that didn't necessarily respond that way? Because every kid's different. Every kid reacts differently. And you've got to coach every kid differently. The cookie cutter approach is no more. So uh, one of our former assistant coaches at Strasburg, who we both love dearly, you know, he would joke about your email signature and all the titles listed underneath your name. Head coach, superintendent and or principal, OHSBCA PR director, clinic director, academic director, podcast host. Do you think you tackle this much because you just love basketball or you're crazy or both? Here's the thing. Go back to what's your why. We explain that. Serve mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Impact young people. Mm-hmm. I feel I'm doing that in all avenues. And yeah, am I, am I super busy? Is it crazy? Am I nuts? Yeah. My wife and I just bought new furniture, right? And I bought this lazy boy recliner. I told my kids and my wife, you can't sit in it. You, can't, you just can't sit in it. It's, it's dad's chair. I've had the furniture for two weeks. I've sat in it one time because I'm always downstairs. I'm always busy. I'm always trying to do stuff. But yeah, I love the game. Well, I mean, I love the game of basketball and what it's done for me and what I feel as though it can do for others and, and the impact it has on young people. And, and right now where we're at as an association, I want to serve coaches. I, that's what I think I'm trying to do. I'm trying to put on a great clinic from an academic side. I think any way that we can reward kids for doing what they're supposed to do in the classroom because we're student athletes at the end of the day first. We can't ever forget that. We can do that. I, I, I want to do that. From the social media, the PR thing, like that's my thing. Like if I could get a job in digital marketing that would allow me to live the lifestyle I currently live, I would do that in a heartbeat. I love doing that. I, I love the PR side of things. Um, and, and my goal is to make the OHSBCA the top basketball coaches association in the country. That's what I want. That's what I want. Our podcast, same thing. Like I feel as though... The product we're putting out, I'm not saying because it's you and me, but the people that we're interviewing, if people just take the time to listen to what is being said, oh my gosh, look at the stuff like Coach Close said or, or, or Coach Montgomery. Like, I just listen to those. And I'm like, wow, like just the knowledge they have that for a lot of people, you would never talk to these guys. You would never interact with these guys, mm-hmm. but, but they're giving you everything. And so yeah. I feel as though being a servant leader is part of my why. And and that's what I'm trying to do. So just to kind of follow up to that, you know, what have you found, you know, heading into your 18th year on the sidelines and, and this younger coaches, older coaches, I think this applies to everyone. Um, What have you found over the years that has helped you find that work-life balance to juggle all of your responsibilities and still find time to be a husband and a dad to your three awesome daughters? I struggle with that. People who say they have that balance, I'd love to talk to them more because I just don't know how you get that balance. It it just seems everybody in general is busier than they've ever been before. And I don't know if we bring a lot of that on ourselves. I think we do. Um, I, I think we do. I, I well, think there's in our society, and I apologize, a little tangent here. I, I think there's something about saying you're busy that makes us feel important and we want people to think we're important i'm i'm in demand i'm needed look at how busy i am sorry to jump in there but but go on no and and i was going to say the same thing i think we like to tell people how busy we are 
when at the end of the day, there's probably a lot we all could cut out to make ourselves less busy, but we choose not to. But, you know, I, I don't think I have a good answer here and I don't have a solution. My recommendation is find something that can give you that release. And, and maybe it's something as simple as, hey, on Sundays, you know, Corey Britton from Fort Lormie told me that on Sundays from like when his kids wake up until seven or eight o'clock at night, he's no basketball. He's all family. And I love that. And if, mm-hmm. if he's got to do stuff, he stays up late on Saturday night, you know, or he gets up really early Sunday morning. You know, I love that. Or maybe it's, maybe you're having a, you know, at one point we tried a, a, a weekly game night. It didn't last long, but doing something like that or a, a weekly night out where you take them out to dinner or, or just something where you can just get away, turn yeah. your phone off, just disconnect. You only get 18 years with your kids, right? You, don't, you yeah. only get a small amount of time and it goes by fast. And I sound like yeah. I'm an old guy. I'm an old man now. I'm only 37, but you know, yeah. that stuff's important. And, and I mean, with your spouse, like, man, you gotta, you gotta put them on a pedestal. You gotta make sure you're taking care of them because if you don't have a supportive spouse, you're not going to last in this profession. All right, Adam. So let's transition to the segment that we regularly do called triple threat. I'm going to fire off three questions. It could be different topics, ideas, suggestions, whatever comes to your mind first. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. Number one, this one's kind of a deep one, but kind of asking you to forecast the future here. Which, Which of the following, or maybe it's something else, what will impact high school basketball more in the next 10 years and why? Is it going to be shot clock implementation, which I know some states are already doing? Is it going to be NIL leaking down into the high school ranks? Or is it going to be specialization? Or is it going to be something else? I do feel like NIL is coming. I, I don't <laughs> know how soon, um, but you know everything trickles down, right? Everything does. So, yep. I mean, it's going to trickle down at some point. I mean, I think Ohio lost one of their best players here because of NIL uh, to another state. Uh, So I think that's going to trickle down. The shot clock, uh, I I think it's going to be, I think it's coming. How soon? I I don't know, but I think it's coming. And and there's pros and cons to it. The one thing I I, I say right now is, you know, I think anybody can coach good players and good teams, even bad coaches. But you Mm -hmm. implement a shot clock, then you're really going to see the separation in coaching. And Mm -hmm. I think... Uh, it, there's there's a different level of strategy with it, but I am concerned probably the most about the declining numbers in basketball and, and the specialization. And there's a variety of things that we can point to and we can blame, and we don't necessarily need to get into that. But it, it does worry me the direction that we're headed and what high school basketball looks like in five to ten years. And I mean, let's just be honest. I'm I'm not knocking any other sport. My kids play other sports. Basketball is hard. You don't get to take a 30 second break in between plays. You don't get to skills. Lack of skills are quickly exposed. Yeah. You don't get to slap hands after scoring a point. You don't get to play in in the outfield and never have to move because a ball never comes your way. Like, and I'm not knocking any other sport. It's just, it's a hard sport to play because it's up and down. And there's so many skills you have to be good at. And anymore, that microwave culture we're in, that instant gratification culture we're in, you know, developing that skill set is hard and it takes time. And our kids patient enough to understand that, our parents patient enough to understand that and and understand the process it takes to become good. 
And so my fear is that we're going to continue to see a decline and some of these other sports might see an uptick because they're, I mean, they're easier, they're easier to do. And too, well, there's so many more things for kids to do than there were even when we played. And there's so many more distractions for kids and kids are getting pulled in so many different directions anymore. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Okay. Number two, your favorite coaching book you've ever read. It's called Leave for God's Sake by Todd Gongler. Great book. And, and I know Todd. Every coach, every coach needs to read yeah. that book. And I know Todd and have had him speak to our students at Strasburg before. When I read that book, and it, I'm reading it and I'm like, he's talking about me. And every coach that I've talked to has said the same thing. It is such an impactful book that if you as a coach have never read it before, you need to read it. Yep. And then you need to follow it up with Joe Ehrman's Inside Out Coaching book, where he talks about the difference between a transactional and a transformational coach. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I didn't want to believe that stuff. And I still struggle with that sometimes. But, you know, I always tell our kids, you know, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And I feel in those books, they're telling me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear, even though I try to fight it sometimes. And the amazing thing about those books, you won't pick up a single X and O, you won't pick up one practice drill that you want to implement, but they're more important than all that stuff. At the end of the day, it comes down to relationships, bottom line. And that's what I've learned along the way. And I know you and I have had multiple discussions about it. It's relationships. And the coaches that are successful and experienced success have had the ability to develop those relationships, get kids to play hard for them, to play for something bigger than themselves. If you don't have those, you're not going to be successful. Number three, favorite practice drill. I'm a big drill guy. I, I've changed a little bit early on. I was, I was super, super heavy on drills. And then Kelly Heron, my assistant coach, one day looked at me and said, hey, you got great drills. And, and we do some phenomenal drill work. But Adam, if these kids don't know how to beat a one-three-one and have never seen it before, or have never seen a diamond press and have never worked against it, all these drills you're doing don't matter. And so I've tried to find a, a better balance between the drill work and the live play because you do want your kids to be exposed to that in practice. So when mm-hmm. they see it in games, it, it's not a shock to them. You still may have to call a timeout and draw something up, but they've at least seen it in practice. But I would say any type of drill that involves defense is going to be something that goes right to the top of the list. Um, a transition drill uh, that I always like to do is is two-on-one, three-on-two continuous. You know, I know a lot of coaches do that. The five-on-five the five baseline touch, um, mm-hmm. I think, is really good uh, as well. But the past couple of years, Walt, I, I really think we've seen, and I don't know if you'll attest to this or not, the most success we've seen I don't necessarily want to call it drill work, is it is in the small side of games. The one-on-one, the two-on-two, the three-on-three, um, where we're still teaching the fundamentals, we're still teaching the different things to do, but we're doing it more body-on-body body, as opposed to one-on-o or as opposed to doing all our dribble moves with cones. I think anytime you can incorporate body-on-body, body, the one-on-one, the two-on-two, three-on-three, the small-sided approach to stuff, I think is is the way to go because these kids just want to play. Yeah, they they want to play. Bottom line, and making it competitive. You know, you can do a one on o zigzag drill defensively, and you can do a you know defensive slides across the lane, or you can go one on one turn the dribbler where you're accomplishing the same thing, but now it's competitive. Yep. and kids are working on their ball handling while you're also working on your defense. So I, I think that's kind of 
where we've shifted a little bit. And I think even last year, you and I saw um, how much more effective our practices were, even from a scouting standpoint, when we didn't spend all our time at the end of practice going over scouting report. But what we did instead was, is, you know, we took those actions and we developed mm-hmm. small sided games out of those actions. And what we told our girl was maybe it was, hey, defend the UCLA screen to a ball screen. Okay, so here's how we're going to defend this, girls. But then after that, just play. Just play three on three. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, so we got we got what we wanted to. We got the defensive mm-hmm. scheme we wanted to use against that action. And then they and got then to play. play. Yep. And that's that's where I think, like, we have to be creative as coaches. And you have to know your team and how to get the most out of them. And I think mm-hmm. that approach is going to be more beneficial for, for most teams than it's not. All right, Adam, this has been awesome. Um, just have one more question, but you know, before we dive into that again, thank you for doing this. We did something a little different, kind of a special edition of our, our show tonight. And, uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I, I don't know if, if I've helped anybody or anything like that, but you know, anybody that ever has questions or wants to reach out about things that, that I've done or, you know, building a program, promoting a program, fundraising, those types of things, I, I don't think I'm a great X's and O's guy or anything like that, but I think from a program building standpoint and fundraising standpoint, we've done a decent job. And anybody ever wants to reach out, you know, feel free to contact me. I love talking basketball. I, I love doing this, Walt. I, I, um, you didn't ask this, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Like, I think what you're doing is phenomenal as well. You know, people listening to this need to understand that Walt does a lot of the planning and the questions developing for these podcasts. And I just kind of, do what he tells me to do, but appreciate you taking the reins for this and, and just your role on my staff as an assistant and, you know, done a great job. So, but thanks. Thanks for having me on. I've, I've enjoyed it. So for our last question tonight, um, pretty straightforward one, not going to be a terribly long question, but I think it's important. I think it's something that all of us coaches should be thinking about and not even just as coaches, but as, as human beings, as men and women, who have an opportunity to influence others and, and try to be the best version of ourselves we can every single day. And you, you've kind of talked about it, your why. Let's say, for whatever reason, you've coached your last game. Your, heaven forbid, family member comes down with, with, with an illness that, you know, you just, you got to step away. Or they stop selling Mountain Dew um, worldwide. Or you damage your your voice box and you just, you can't do it anymore. You're done. What is the legacy? And again, hopefully this doesn't happen now. Hopefully this is 30 years from now, but, but what is the legacy that you want those former players, those former coaches you got to work with those administrators, you know, those fans even, what is the legacy you want to leave them with? You know, I think it's simple, Walt. We said it at Strasburg, and we've said it at Cant South. You know, when our, when our time is done in anything we do, you know, whether it's our job, program, you know, raising kids, whatever, we want to make sure we left it better than we found it. And I think, from my standpoint, from from the legacy, I, I, I want to leave. I, I, I want to make sure that the people at Strasburg say when they talk about Adam Hall, hey, he left this program better than he found it. And he had a tremendous impact on young people. The same way it can't sell to us. You know, Bobby Knight said this about his program at Indiana. He said that those kids that play for him, okay, 
He wanted them to feel like they had a better opportunity to be successful after graduating than those kids who chose not to be a part of his program. And I think we're kind of in the same boat. You know, we want our kids to to come back, to leave our program and come back and say, thank you, coach. You know, the lessons we learned on the hardwood, the lessons we learned on those those conversations we had on those uh, summer trips to shootouts or those moments we shared in the locker room, why not always pleasant, help prepare me for what lies ahead and helps make me a better person, a better husband, a better wife, a better um, parent. That's the legacy that I want to leave. I said this before, you're never going to win enough. You're just, you're just never going to win enough. If you're a competitor, you're never going to win enough. It can't be about that. It's got to be about developing young people, giving them the tools they need to be successful in a world that is always changing and evolving and giving them the tools they need to thrive. And at the end of the day, our world now is not going to be the same world in five or 10 years. It's not. But the work ethic, the attitude, the resiliency, those are skills that, that transcend and that will be valuable no matter how our world changes and evolves. Thanks for listening to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook at OhioBKCoaches, on Instagram at OHSBCA1947, and online at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.